0: This is Mortification of SPIN from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. We can continue only with your help. Visit mortificationofspin.org to make a donation or call 1-800-488-1888. What's the point of having elders in the church? How do they function? Carl and Todd discuss the important and perennial topic of biblical elder leadership in this episode of Mortification of SPIN. After the podcast, listen for details on how you can receive a free mp3 download. You are listening to The Mortification
1: of Spin, the regular podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. And I am one half of your hosting team, Todd Pruitt. I'm the pastor of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Harrisonburg, Virginia. And I'm joined as always by the other half of this team, Dr. Carl Truman, pastor of Cornerstone Presbyterian Church in Ambler, Pennsylvania and Professor of Church History at Westminster Theological Seminary. Carl, good morning. It's good to see you. It's
2: great to be here, Todd. should probably say we're in a slightly different location we today. Are. We're in a top-secret bunker quite close to the CIA headquarters, I think, <laughs> as I was true. driving in. That's uh, true. We also have a live audience. Uh, half of our mass listening public are actually present in the studio <laughs> today. Uh, Mrs. Kelly Clifford, the uh, delightful wife of Pastor Dan Clifford, of an OPC church just outside Washington. And we also have Mike Harris here, who as always is the equivalent to us of Sir George Martin
1: to the Beatles on Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club (laughs) Band. He's a brilliant man, and he keeps us sounding good, so that's important.
2: Well, the topic for today's discussion, Todd, is elders. We've talked before on the podcast about qualifications for elders, and I seem to remember we emphasized there that when Paul is writing in his pastoral letters, uh, he's looking towards what the church will look like after the death of the apostles, when that immediate first-generation leadership, commissioned by the Lord directly uh, to lead the church, as that generation passes away, what needs to be in place in order to guarantee the continued faithful propagation of the gospel for future generations. One of the things Paul talks about is a form of sound words, the need for, I would say, some kind of creed or confession, uh, which can act as an expression, a synthesis of biblical teaching to which uh, the church and her leadership can, can hold. The other side of it is that he establishes a structure of leadership. He talks about elders, overseers, uh, and he also talks about deacons. And one of the striking things, of course, about his discussion of of elders and indeed deacons is how ordinary they are. Paul is not saying look for dynamic individuals, uh, good-looking individuals, individuals that will be great leaders of men as the world thinks of it. Paul lays out a series of fairly bland criteria, really. These are to be good members of the church, uh, good members of their local community. They are to represent in the way they live the, the aspirations, that to which one wishes all Christians to aspire. They're not to be perfect, they're to be reliable, dare one say it, bland uh, Christian men who can be safely entrusted with the gospel as truth and with the the souls of those who gather to hear the word each lord's day so we've discussed qualifications in, a, in an earlier podcast we want to talk today more about the the functions of an elder what does an elder do uh, we spend a lot of time on this podcast reflecting on what pastors do what is it that an elder does todd you have some
1: initial thoughts on that well i think clearly as you've already suggested um and, and just to, again, emphasize to those who may not uh, understand this, th- clearly the presupposition of the New Testament uh, is that the church is going to be led by a plurality of elders. Um, that was Paul's presupposition. He went about, we're told, establishing elders in all of the churches. Um, and so if, if I, I, I want to, to believe that most of those who would listen to uh, something like the Mortification of spin um are uh, are of the mind that the church ought to be led by a plurality of elders but if you're not there um we would encourage you to uh, to examine that issue now as far as duties go uh Carl you're a uh, pastor of an OPC church um so you know by very definition it's a very small church and uh you may not need very many elders um and of course the challenge of finding elders that would be willing Ouch. to work with you um see See what I like about being Presbyterian, Carl, is that we can tease each other, and it ultimately really doesn't hurt our feelings that bad, does it?
2: It it does it doesn't. And, and while we're on the matter of teasing, <laughs> so I wonder if, uh, uh, lest we appear to be ignoring any significant minority out there, uh, I wonder if you could just comment on do do Reformed Baptists have deacons and elders From as well? From what I
1: understand, Reformed Baptists uh, believe in uh, uh, the the necessity of both of those offices—that of elder and deacon—and we don't want to leave out uh, our Reformed Baptist brothers. Um, in, that, uh, in that discussion. So, this is a distinctive uh, that is certainly grounded in the New Testament and that uh, Presbyterians and uh, Reformed Baptists uh, affirm uh, together. Excellent. I and think
2: that's a wonderful token reference. And so now let's get back absolute, to Presbyterianism uh, at this yeah, point.
1: Yeah. yeah. And, and just as a disclaimer, that was a little bit of sarcasm. Carl and I actually do not believe that Presbyterians are the only Christians or churchmen in the world.
2: Speak for yourself there, (laughs) Todd.
1: How dare you speak on my behalf? See, see, and and herein you're you're seeing the essential difference between PCA and OPC.
2: Now what I would say actually, just as an aside here, is that uh, in my OPC church we have Baptists who worship with us every Sunday and who are members of my church and through whom we express the the unity of the body. And I just hope that my Reformed Baptist brethren uh, express the same unity of the body through worshiping and having as members of their church
1: Presbyterians yeah. and Peter yeah. Baptists as well. Yeah. yeah, without insisting that they get uh, uh, rebaptized. Yes,
2: and all angry hate mail should be directed to uh, the puppet master, not to myself <laughs> or Todd. <laughs> anyway, right. Todd.
1: Yeah. Um, and uh, again, we were talking about this a little bit earlier. Um, I'm I love the fact that every week there is a. Unity in the in the church that I pastor between Pado and Credo Baptists, while, while, a, while a Credo Baptist cannot be an elder in, in the church I pastor. They can certainly be a fully functioning member. They can teach. And each week I'm a part of uh, services of worship where Pedo and Credo Baptists join together in unity and in fellowship, and it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. We were talking about elders, weren't we? I've I completely forgot yeah, but exactly. let's talk about elders. So uh, what about, <laughs> um, you know, what— how do we think about, as far as ratio of, of elder to to non-elder, to, to, to lay member, what's, what's a good ratio? How, how big does a session need to be in order to adequately care and lead a, a church?
2: I think that's a question a little bit like how long is a piece of string. There's mm. no absolute and clear uh, statement in Scripture on that issue. I think various principles need to be borne in mind. I think it's important that... Uh, elders have uh, enough people to take care of, to have particular oversight over, individual elders have oversight over them, that those elders are aware when the people on their care lists are not in church on a Sunday, mm-hmm. for example. Um, in a church of 100 people, it's relatively easy, I think, for, for a pastor to stand at the front and when he's preaching to to scan the congregation and to spot who hasn't been there for a week or two. Uh, you get to 150, 200, 300, 400, 500, and I know you, you know, was it 20,000 in your church? <laughs> Something starts? like that, sure. Um, you get to sort of a, a larger church. You need to have some way of making sure that people are coming to church. You need to have some way of making sure right. that people get spoken to on a regular basis after the worship service just to check in with them, see, mm-hmm. see how they're doing. So, the precise ratio of elders to people, the precise number of elders, I think that depends upon the gifts and the talents of the people you're bringing on to the session. It depends upon uh, the dynamic between elders and, and congregation. But the principle of making sure that everybody in the congregation is known by name by at least one elder and recognized on a Sunday and looked out for on a Sunday by an elder is is very, very important.
1: Yeah, yeah. I I... I just came from, well, I didn't just come from, it feels like I just came from a session meeting. We were out until about midnight last night, and it was actually a very, very good meeting. But part of our process is we uh, measure our um, attendance every Sunday by having members actually sign an attendance register. You don't get George Barna to come in. We don't have George (laughs) Barna. We we uh, we, we do a terrible job of marketing probably, but we do have our members uh, sign in an attendance register every Sunday, and we review those in our in our session meetings, so that if there's a member uh, that has missed a few Sundays, um, we contact that person. We we see if they're plugged into a a, a small group. Um, who who the elder is that has direct oversight over that family. Um, I think if you cannot do something like that, then you're not serving your church well, because it begins with making sure that we're shepherding the people that the Lord is entrusted to us and if we don't even know if they're there on a Sunday morning then clearly we can't do that
2: yeah and I think that points to another important principle that the the whole in terms of the session or the elder board is greater than the sum of the parts you're yes. working as a team. Not everybody on the session has the same gifts. Not everybody has the same time that they're able to devote to this, but everybody is responsible for making sure that the, the session as a whole is operating in a way that, that appropriately shepherds and, and pastors the flock.
1: Yeah. Hey, Carl, so give me some thoughts on uh, the idea of the elders— protecting their pastor or pastors, what does that need to look like um, in a church? Because clearly in we're, we're all sinners, we're joined together in the body of Christ, but we're sinners, and the pastor is often the lightning rod for whatever may not be right or running smoothly in the church. How do the ruling elders protect and help and, in some cases, guard uh, their their pastor? Uh, at a most basic level, I think just encouragement. Uh, occasional
2: email, uh, a, a conversation, an invitation to breakfast, those kind of things where uh, the pastor can be encouraged and perhaps on occasion you know, mildly rebuked, maybe for something he's done wrong. But uh, if the pastor knows that the elders have his best interest at heart, and love him and care for him as a person. They can both encourage him and offer words of, of rebuke on occasion right. as and when it is necessary. I also think the the elders operate often as the, the pastor's eyes and ears within the congregation. Mm-hmm. Um, if there is a particularly problematic member of the congregation, I think it is uh, it is uh, the duty of the elders to defend the pastor's good name when they mm. overhear the pastor being uh, Yes, uh, demeaned, criticized, rubbished, lied about, slandered, etc., uh, by that church member. And I also think it's the duty of the elders to make sure that they report to the pastor these kind of things that are going on, because left unchecked, they can, they can fester. I also appreciate the fact that when we have difficult problems come up in our church, I'm able to, to shoot an email to uh, the elders as a whole, get corporate wisdom on it. And quite often, one of them will say, well, actually, this is my area, or this person is on my visiting list, I'll deal with it for you. So that ability, that willingness to to shoulder some of the, the direct pastoring burden during the week. Difference is, of course, is that that pastors get paid. Right. Uh, and I think that that means that they should take a, a higher profile role often. And there are certain circumstances, for example, if somebody's in hospital, I think... Person in hospital expects the minister to go and visit them. It's just a psychological thing, and an elder won't quite do. So there are some circumstances where I think that the minister really does have to step up. But on the whole, I think the the elders function well, protecting the minister by taking their their share of responsibility yeah. for the flock.
1: Mm-hmm. I I think as a, as a part of that, um, it's really really important for the elders to share a strong sense of unity. And what I mean by that is now that I'm a part of a confessional denomination, a confessional church, I see the power and and the health and, and the good things that come from a body of men, a session, who all agree on a confession of faith, a clear and rather extensive confession of faith. I know what it is to serve with men who who do not share the same doctrinal confession and it leads to terrible problems. And my experience with that is that what ends up happening is you have various elders representing various constituencies within the church. Uh, A constituency that is, for instance, Anabaptist or Reformed or liberal or conservative or the constituency that likes the pastor and the constituency that doesn't like the pastor. And because there's nothing that ultimately really unites those men together, it ends up putting the pastor in a situation where it's impossible for him to lead and to serve well um, because there's no unified voice from the men that. He's ultimately accountable to um, on that on that session, and so and and I've and I've heard the, the language used. Well, I represent this constituency. I represent that constituency in the church. That's very very dangerous. Not that a a good confession of faith solves everything, but when you take men through a process of of candidating as an elder, where they have to embrace and fully accept. Um, a clear doctrinal confession of faith. It sure does go a long way in forging unity.
2: Yeah, and I think another side of of the confessional subscription thing, of course, is that it it clearly marks out those things that we, we agree on and therefore indicates those areas where we, we have liberty. Right. At the, the church where I serve, we, we have uh, one of the, the booklets we occasionally give away is a booklet written by a, a, a very delightful fellow who lives locally on on the relationship of Christianity to the arts. And it doesn't actually represent my own opinion. It's much more of what one might call a, a, a trans, transformationalist mm-hmm. approach mm-hmm. to Christianity in the arts. And... One of the young people at church picked up and read it and came up to me and said, and laughing, said, I didn't think this represented what you (laughs) think. And my response was, well, no, it doesn't. What you're seeing there, actually, that actually represents something that the session disagree on. But, you know, it doesn't matter because we agree on the confession and the catechisms, and that's what we're about here. And we have liberty in other things. I said, and I'm perfectly happy for that booklet to be distributed because it represents a legitimate Christian approach. I happen to disagree with it, mm-hmm. but it doesn't touch on the theological identity of who we are as a church. And more importantly, it doesn't disrupt the unity on the session because we already have our confession laid down that says, these are the things that are important. And we, I think, go out of our way not to fall out over areas where we disagree but which are not specified in the confessional documents of the church. And a lot of people miss that in confessionalism. They think confessionalism is about rigid conformity. Right. I would say, no, it's about defining what the church is about in order that we then have these areas of liberty where Christian brothers and Christian sisters can legitimately disagree, even at a leadership level. If somebody were to say to me, I want to take that view of Christianity and the arts, and I'm going to make it part of the confessional identity of this church, I'd fight them tooth and nail, but it's a perfectly legitimate opinion to be expressed right. because it doesn't mm-hmm. uh, butt up against uh, what we have right. in our confessional and standards.
1: I, and I would suggest that that's only possible, allowing that sort of freedom in a way that it doesn't divide, is only possible when there really is a very clear confession of faith yeah, yeah. that that that's that, that's quite... Um, uh, that, 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 that's quite extensive. Yeah. Uh, it, 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 where where the confession of faith is basically we believe in mere Christianity, that doesn't work well towards unity.
2: No, well you have to leave virtually everything else up to individual conscience, so right. you have chaos, you either have chaos or continual turf wars. Mm-hmm.
1: And so where you have a church where there's no clear agreement on things that are as important as the sacraments, um, and certain views of the atonement. Uh, you're going to have deep, deep problems of division, period. Yeah. Because this sort of merest approach to Christianity is not what's going to uh, to unite us together. So I'm, I'm very grateful, and I see, I've now been seeing on a very regular basis uh, the sort of unity that is forged among elders when there is clear agreement on a clear confession of faith. And for me as the pastor— that gives me a strong sense of security. And it also, I think, points towards another aspect,
2: practical aspect of elders in the local church, and that is there is a need for training. Yes. That when somebody is being brought forward for, for eldership, typically we will ask the congregation for nominations. Mm-hmm. Uh, we as a session would be thinking about, about whom we might call. But once we've identified some potential candidates, we then want to make sure that they truly understand what the confession teaches and also how the confession functions within the church and what their vows as office bearers will bind them to Uh, because there are good men in congregations who will never serve as elders not because of some moral failing not because of some educational failing but because they'll ultimately not be able to sign up to the doctrinal requirements of what an elder is wanting in a church. And it's important to make make it very clear up front what they are, because if you allow somebody onto the session who doesn't understand that, mm-hmm. then you are going to end up with the guy who wants to make his position on Christianity and the arts, the normative position for the, <laughs> the church. He needs to understand the confession and the, the way the confession
1: limits church power. Yeah, exactly. And 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 again, I was involved in a in a session meeting last night where we had several men complete a year-long process of candidating for the role of ruling elder uh, in our church. And I must say, it was very encouraging to be interviewing these men knowing they'd been through a year-long process that was rigorous, that was testing. Um, And the church can feel very good about those men knowing that they've been well-evaluated on the basis of those doctrinal standards. So, made me happy as a pastor. I
2: mean, the other side of that, of course, is, is that you don't want yes men. Correct. On as a session. I think that the, I, I don't want to bring in too much secular leadership theory here, but one of the, the key things about great leaders in the wider world is they don't surround themselves with yes men who simply rubber stamp their most crazy decisions. Right. It's, it's good to have friends, men you can trust, men that you know will take a bullet for you if necessary, but also men who you know have got the backbone to stand up to you when you're doing something completely crazy. Exactly. Or deviant or wrong. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. So uh, the other the other aspect of elders, Todd, is division of labor. Some people sometimes get confused between elders and deacons. I remember uh, I was speaking at a, a, a presbytery meeting in the UK about six months ago, and somebody actually asked the question. This was a, a visitor from a denomination that I won't mention because I might be seen to be insulting them again. I so I won't mention the, the denomination affiliation of this good person, idea. But they put the hand up and said they didn't understand what the difference between elders and deacons mm. uh, is. Well, would you yeah. would you sort of articulate that yeah. relative to,
1: to the church you're now? And what do elders do and what do deacons do? Yeah, I've been really encouraged by how they've divided the labor um, in the PCA church where I serve so that clearly uh, the deacons as we know, going back to Acts chapter six, they take care of the benevolent needs in the church. But there's more to it than that. There is there there are some very helpful and necessary administrative roles that they take care of as well. So they oversee the health of the facilities, they maintain the facilities. Do they clean your car? Or? They do not clean okay. my car. Polish your shoes, but perhaps, they don't so. polish my shoes, and I've been meaning to talk to them about that. <laughs> but but I, I attended a, a deacon meeting just the other night. And and one of my thoughts was I would never volunteer for this job because of how much they do. Um, beyond the, the, the meeting of the benevolent needs, these men are maintaining our facilities, they are operating uh, large portions of our budget and overseeing areas of our budget, and really doing the kinds of things that then allow the ruling elders and the teaching elders to do that role. Um, I don't have to worry about whether or not our facility is going to be well-maintained. The ruling elders don't have to worry about that. And so we can spend significant portions of time actually investing in the pastoral needs mm. of our people, teaching, praying, shepherding, because those deacons are m- freeing us up to do that.
2: And I think it, as a sort of word of uh, reflection on that, I think one of the things that that sessions and congregations often do badly is uh, appreciate the deacons. Yes, That they tend to be the the hidden people doing a lot of hard work, a lot of unglamorous work behind the scenes, and we don't express our appreciation for them as we should. Yes. And maybe that's something that that pastors need to preach on more regularly mm-hmm. in order to, to bring home to people. There are men behind the scenes who do, they clean the drains, Yep. They, they're car park attendants, they're Uh, meeting with people from the town with serious social problems and having to make difficult decisions on how much of the church's money we do use to help those outside the church with with their problems and difficulties it goes on behind the scenes some of it like the the latter scenario I I just outlined is confidential we we don't even know they're doing it but it's worth while maybe this Sunday if you're listening to this program If you get an opportunity, why don't you go up and encourage, sounds a cliche, encourage a deacon. Uh, sounds really, as we would say in Britain, terribly naff to say that. But it's important. It is. These men do this work. It doesn't have the social standing within the church, typically, that an elder has. It's
1: not as public.
2: No, but it is an office of honor and great integrity. Mm -hmm. Uh, And these men should be honored for what they're doing.
1: I can tell you, having been at Covenant Presbyterian now for just a few months, Uh, We would be in a mess if it were not for our deacons. Yeah, yeah.
2: Well, uh, that brings us pretty much to the end of the program. We're delighted to have had you with us today. Uh, Just to summarize, uh, elders, very important. Uh, Make sure, pastors, that you have a good, transparent, friendly and trusting relationship with your elders. Don't forget the deacons. The deacons do extremely important work within the church. If nobody is unlocking the door on a Sunday, nobody can get into worship. They really are that important. Uh, This has been the Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count. Please do visit our website at mortificationofspin.org. Uh, We're a ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Uh, You can visit uh, the Alliance website at Uh, alliancenet.org. We look forward to having you with us next time.
0: This is Mortification of Spin. Just for listening, we'd like to give you a free MP3 entitled Growing Healthy Churches. Visit our website, mortificationofspin.org, to find a link to the download. Mortification of Spin is a production of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Alliance ministries include reformation21.org, Every Last Word with Philip Reichen, and events from Florida to Sacramento. To learn more about the Alliance, visit alliancenet.org or call 800-488-1888. We can only continue to bring these resources with your support. To make a donation, please visit mortificationofspin.org or call 800-488-1888. Please listen again, and don't forget your free MP3 download.